Alright, if you would please this evening take your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter number 12 as we continue our series uh, on the king's conflict, which is essentially the situation where Israel demanded from God a king and God had wanted to be His people's king. We're studying somewhat of not just necessarily that soul conflict, but as we watch the nation of Israel evolve from a uh, from a theocracy to a monarchy, we're watching the conflicts that uh, arise because of those things. And so we come tonight to 1 Samuel chapter number 12. Now, at the close of last week's study, 1 Samuel chapter number 11, uh, King Saul kind of concluded his highlight chapter. It was the best of King Saul. Uh, he won a miraculous victory. He was a great leader. He made good plans. He executed those things according to God's will. And the final verse, or, or at least verse 14, the Bible says, Then said Samuel to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. In verse 15, And all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So there seems to be a lot of positive momentum within the nation. After all, the king that they defeated, we talked about last week, was one of the, one of the primary reasons they were motivated to ask for a king at all. It was that King Nahash that seemed to have an imposing presence in the, in the area in which they were residing. And they said, we got to come up with a way to defeat this king. So they asked the Lord for a king. Now we come to 1 Samuel 12 with this positive momentum, this excitement. Everybody's united under King Saul. Nobody's in disagreement that this is the man that God has for them now. There's excitement and positivity and then the preacher stands up in verse number 1. And Samuel said unto all Israel, Behold, I have hearkened unto your voice in all that ye said unto me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walketh before you, and I am old and gray-headed. Behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood unto this day. Behold... Here I am, witness against me before the Lord, and before His anointed, whose ox have I taken, or whose ass have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed, or of whose hand have I received any bribe to, bl to blind mine eyes therewith, and I will restore it you. Now verse number 3 starts with an interesting statement, and it's interesting because of what it reminds us of. He says, Behold, here I am. You remember when he was just a child, serving there at the temple of Shiloh alongside Eli. Uh, he was very much just a, an errand boy of the, the, the high priest. And he was there serving faithfully. And we even see a sort of uh, comparison and a contrast made between the way that Samuel faithfully ministered to the Lord and the way that the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas did. While they're uh, defrauding people and while they're corrupting the temple of God, Samuel is pictured as a young man faithfully ministering to Eli and faithfully ministering before the Lord. And one night God speaks to Samuel. 
And you remember his response when he heard this voice calling him. He goes into Eli's chambers and he says, Here am I. Here am I. I'm ready to serve. Late in the middle of the night. Here here am I. I'll do whatever you need, Eli. That's what I'm here for, to serve you and make your job easier. I'm here. And boy, wouldn't it be great if there were more people in the church that came with that attitude. Here am I. Whatever it is, here am I. Here am I. I want to serve. I want to be a part. You know, I've noticed in today's church culture, so many people want to come and be a part of a church, but they don't want to come and actually contribute at that church. And in a sense, they turn into sort of, and I know I, this, I say this not in any way uh, trying to condemn, but they sort of turn into a sort of Christian parasite. And don't mean to mean that negatively as it sounds. I just mean they come only to take, only to get. And, and, and that's good to a degree, but eventually when, when the Word of God is being poured into you, at some point what you've learned and what you've, what you've experienced needs to be poured out onto others. And so that's where you come to be a part, uh, have a part in the church. Now, Samuel or, went to Eli and said, here am I. He did this twice and finally Eli in his old age, said, I don't think it's me that you're talking to or that is talking to you. I think it's the Lord. And so here's what you need to do. Next time you hear that voice, here's what you need to say. Don't say, here am I. Say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. This opening phrase reminds us of the service that Samuel had dedicated himself to. The servants, service of the temple, the service to God's people, and the service of the Lord. Now, moving to verse number 4. And they said, Thou hast not defrauded us, nor oppressed us, neither hast thou taken aught of any man's hand. And he said unto them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is a witness this day, that ye have not found aught in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. So they're publicly acknowledging Yeah, Samuel, you have faithfully served in your office. And in Eastern culture, most people assumed that if you had such an influential role, if you had such power and authority, you would use that in certain areas to get more gain than others. Uh, A tax collector was viewed as crooked just because of the authority that he had. They just assumed he was using his role in his office in a negative sense. And so they're agreeing here, Samuel, you have not defrauded any of us. Verse number 6. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land. Now I think why Samuel has set the stage in the manner that he has. He's saying, I just want everybody to raise their hands, that my years of ministry have been to faithfully serve you. I did not come to you and ask uh, corrupt things. I did not defraud you. I did not take of any man's uh, livestock uh, 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 incorrectly. I, my ministry has been uh, characterized by a servant wanting to serve you. Would you all agree? And everybody says, yeah, that's, you've not ever done anything to me. He's never done anything to my neighbor. Samuel, you've been a faithful servant. And now he says this, after this momentum, after this excitement, after the whole kingdom is unified under the reign of King Saul, now Samuel says this, he says, it was the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron. 
he's referring here to the Exodus. He's referring to when God brought them out of Egypt, how that God raised up Moses and God raised up Aaron. It was not the people's doing. It was the people's cry to God that God said, I have heard, the, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have seen their taskmasters and I have seen their pain and their suffering. So I will raise up a deliverer. Do you notice the difference between what's happened in our passage and what they're speaking of in the Exodus? What Samuel's speaking of in the Exodus. You prayed for a deliverer. God gave you a deliverer. Here, you've demanded a king God gave you a king. But the deliverer, as God reigned supreme, the deliverer had certain positive qualities that would deliver you and and bring you to God, whereas the king, and and he warned them in chapter 8, he's going to take. He's going to take from you very much like I have not done to you. I have not defrauded you. I have not stolen any man's thing. But that's exactly what the king will do. And very much... Samuel is here uh, setting forth examples of the way that God has chosen to deliver His people versus the way that His people prefer to be delivered. Does that make sense? He says, God raised up Moses and Aaron, and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord." which He did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. Verse number 9. And when they forgot the Lord God, He sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Now, verse number 9 was an interesting thing for me as it says, and they forgot the Lord. How could you forget the Lord? I was interested in knowing what the word forgot mean, in this case, forget. That really is used in two contexts. One, it means this. It means to ignore. To fail to properly respond to. You know... Like when that buddy that talks way too long on the phone calls you and you just don't have time to answer his call, you just say, ignore, right? That's what the children of Israel here are being compared to as uh, what they've done to God. God uh, was trying to lead you. God brought you deliverers. But then you decided to say, nope, God, we have forgotten you. We have intentionally chosen to neglect acknowledging you in daily life. This, in this sense, the word forget is very much on purpose. It is an intentional uh, displacing of God from His rightful place. Now, the other way it's used is this. They ceased to care. So one means to ignore. That's on purpose. To cease to care is to have no purpose. To find no real motivation or meaning to to submit yourself to God and to follow after Him. So they, either way, it's quite condemning of their faith. They did not just forget God in the sense that we use it where it's, well, you know, honey, have you seen my keys? It's not like that. Nobody said, "Hey, hey, where did we leave God? No, that's not it. They either intentionally did it or they had grown so complacent in their faith walk that they had omitted God entirely from it. They forgot the Lord. Verse number 10. 
And they cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies and we will serve thee. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and ye dwelled safe. Again, so we've seen now this period of the exodus. The great leader that led the children of Israel out of Egypt was Moses. And Aaron served as the the spiritual component, the high priest of that. So you have Moses and Aaron being raised up by God as their deliverers. Now, Samuel has gone to the next dispensation, if you will. The next generation of how God would raise up leaders. At first it was Moses, the great deliverer out of Egypt. Now he brings up the period of the judges. And that period lasted, uh, it's a moving target, but uh, somewhere around 180 to 200 years. Uh, And these people mentioned here are all judges. Now, Jerubbabel, that man, is actually the man that we more commonly refer to as Gideon. God gave him the name Jerubbabel in Judges chapter 6. This is the same Gideon that was uh, threshing uh, his wheat and, and God decided, or an angel showed up and uh, Gideon asked the Lord, if we're God's people and God still favors us, where be all His many miracles? And Gideon was just about fed up with having to hide Everything in life, he was hiding uh, his field from the Ammonites. And he was just fed up being God's people who were supposed to be conquering and supposed to be victorious. And he was just done living a mundane lifestyle. And God says, okay, you go, thou mighty man of valor. And Gideon struggled with some uncertainties. And remember Gideon's fleece, he put it out and he said, okay, today I want the fleece to be wet and I want the ground to be dry. And and then God did that and he says, well, today, just to make sure that wasn't some strange universal coincidence, I'm going to put the fleece out and I want the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. But Gideon was a mighty man of God. So too was the man Badan. Now, we aren't entirely sure who this is. Some believe this is Samson. The Hebrew word here, Badan, means son of Dan. Uh, Samson was of the tribe of Dan. So it would make sense that he could be referred to here. There's other people that believe that it is Barak. And, and that is a, just a variant spelling of his name. Either way, both of these men's, men were judges. And then you go to Jephthah. Now, Jephthah was a mighty man of valor as well. Here's what's interesting about Jephthah. He was the son of an harlot. And he was rejected by his peers because of his mother. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't look at us through the eyes of our peers? Aren't you thankful that we're not disqualified from God's service just because of what others might condemn us for? God used this man, though others rejected this man. And so he, he now speaks to the people about this period of judges. Again, I cannot emphasize this enough. Samuel is using the case that God has raised up deliverers. And he reiterates it through the, t- the period of judges, which by definition, a judge was a, a person risen up by God to lead the people back in spiritual conquest. And so you have the period of Moses and Aaron delivering them out of the Exodus. Now you have the period of the judges. God has been the one to hear the cry of the people and raise up the deliverers. 
And now continuing on, we see verse number 12. And when ye saw that Nahash, that's the king they defeated in the previous chapter, under the leadership of King Saul, when ye saw that Nahash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. Here's what Samuel's point so far has been. If we would have just stuck to God's plan, God never abandoned you. God always heard your cry. God always raised up your deliverer. God was always faithful to do so. And God has always been the, men, the, the one to use men as instruments for Him. And that's all that Moses was. He was a meek man and he was a mighty man. But at the end of the day, Moses was just a man. He was made a great man because he served a great God. And though they had made a sort of ancient hero out of Moses, Samuel's major point is this. Moses was a man used mightily by God. As was Gideon, and as was uh, uh, Samson, and as was all the judges. They were just godly men that God used mightily. But all of a sudden you came to this King Nahash. And everybody told you how mighty he was. And everybody told you how strong he was. And you decided that the plan that God had used over and over and over again was not going to work this time. And so you demanded for yourselves a king. Notice in verse number 13. Now therefore, behold the king whom ye have chosen. Now there's all this momentum in the kingdom at this point. Sam, uh, uh, Saul's coronation just really occurred in the, in the closing verses of the last chapter. Everybody's united behind the king. For the first time we have a united monarchy. Now notice what he says. Now therefore, behold your king. Whom ye have chosen, and whom ye have desired. Behold, the Lord set a king over you. You've got what you've asked for. If ye will fear the Lord, and serve Him, and obey His voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye also the king, and also the king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. Really, if you ask me for a theme of this chapter, I think you could say it is redeemable mistakes. No doubt it was a sin and an error to request a king. God had not wanted them to have a king. Yet God here says, the same promise I made to you before, if you'll follow after me in faith, I will bless you now goes through the fact that you've made a terrible error and I will still continue that blessing. God redeems mistakes. God fixes broken things. It's amazing when you look through the Bible at some of the characters and the way that God mightily used them. It's, it's amazing that God used Rahab, not just to save the spies, but then to become a part of the kingly lineage of Israel. It's amazing that God used the relationship between David and Bathsheba to produce the young man Solomon, the one who would uh, uh, continue the throne of his father David. Now, he didn't have to do that, but why did God do that? Because God redeems mistakes. God fixes broken things. God spends a lot more time trying to break those that think they need no fixing 
when he would rather fix those that recognize their brokenness. You see, all of us want to act like we don't have any problems or any issues. Friend, God must humble you before He can exalt you. He has no problem exalting the humbled. This is the chapter's theme. You've made a mistake. You've asked for a king. Now notice in verse number 16. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord and He shall send thunder and rain that ye may perceive and see that your wickedness is great which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. This has still been sin. That has never changed. It was, a, it was a sin for the people to ask. It showed a level of faithlessness that God was just not pleased with. And in verse 17 he says, Is not today the harvest of, of wheat? Is not today wheat harvest? And now he says, What God's going to do to show that he agrees with my message and to display my power... He's going to send a thunderstorm that's going to shock you to your core. The other night, my parents and my son were on the front porch. They told me of this event. I was not there. They were just out on the front porch watching it rain, I suppose. And all of a sudden, my dad, my mom, and my son were all there. All of a sudden, a bolt of lightning struck what my dad said in his life was the closest he had ever seen it strike. He said, as soon as you saw the lightning, you heard the crash of it. My son began to scream and cry, and he ran over to Grandma and hugged on real tight. You see, have you ever been in a thunderstorm where you could say, surely only God could produce power like that? Not only would this thunderstorm be quite powerful, but it would be out of season entirely. I know we live in Texas, which by my opinion is the most bipolar climate of all time. At one point this year, we looked like we were living uh, above the Arctic Circle. And another point, we feel like we're living in the belly of hell. So we definitely suffer from uh, severe extremes. But for this thunderstorm to occur at the time of wheat would be similar to snow being forecasted for the middle of July here. It just doesn't make sense because at this time there should be no thunderstorms. There should be no rain at the time of harvest of wheat. And so when Samuel says, God will do this, he is saying, God will validate my message and display his power. Moving to verse number 18. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said unto Samuel, Pray for thy servants unto the Lord thy God, that we die not. For we have added unto all our sins this evil, to ask us a king. Heretofore, the theme of all of these reprimands by, by uh, uh, Samuel has, has resulted in the people still continuing to ask for the king. They persisted. They, they, we want a king. We know what you're saying, but we want a king. He may take our sons. He may take our daughters. He may take our livestock. He may raid our vineyards, but we want a king. This is the time where they finally recognize as God confirms the message of Samuel. Now they say, we sinned. We messed up. We have rebelled against God. Did you know there's a big difference between recognizing sin in other people's lives than there is in recognizing sin in your own life? For the first time, it's like the blinders fall off the nation of Israel and they say, no, no. We have sinned. 
we recognize that this was a mistake. We recognize that this was not the right thing to do. And now moving forward in verse number 20. And Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sit against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, to cons- for consider how great things He hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your kingdom. Now if you read what's at the top of many Bibles or at the top of many commentaries on this passage, what you will find is, it is called in many places, Samuel's farewell address. Samuel's final message. This is, by all estimations, uh, Samuel's final large-scale message that he preaches to the nation of Israel collectively. Now, it's helpful to know that Samuel doesn't die until Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 25. His ministry is not ending here, but there seems to be some authority. Uh, primarily, it seems like he is ceded military authority to King Saul. He's saying, I will no longer lead you in military conquest. And he's saying, but I want to warn you about thinking in your minds that King Saul is your great deliverer. He says, he may use the man, and he may redeem the mistake, but it will always be the mighty power of God that produces victory in your life. And he's warning the people of this. And he covers really, and I have to hurry, three quick thoughts in this message. Number one, the testimony of a faithful life. Could you imagine standing before our church and saying, Hey, anybody, does, does anybody find a problem with the way that I've treated everybody in here? Have I ever said anything bad to you? Have I ever insulted you? Have I ever taken anything from you wrongfully? Have I ever hurt your feelings? Have I ever made a mistake in your life? This is exactly what Samuel does. He opens himself up like a book. Asking every interaction that he's had over the course of some 92 years. He says, hey, have I ever defrauded a single person? What we find here is the value of a life lived faithfully for the Lord. He had not been living for men, but in his attempt to live for God, he had treated other men fairly. He was a man of integrity. He was a man of character. Many of you have known me about as long as my parents have known me. Some of you ladies changed my diapers in the, in the nursery. That's an interesting thing to consider that you have changed your pastor's diapers. <laughs> but my life has been lived in this place in a sort of glass house. You know me at my worst and you know me at my best. Some of you have taught classes of mine. Some of you know what it is to send me to the principal's office. I mean, it happened very rarely, I'm sure. (laughs) Yet Samuel's life, we can guess he came to the temple about age three, age four, after he'd been weaned. 
And he dies at the age of 95. And all those years his life was lived, all of those teenage years, all of those young adult years, all of his life has been lived as a minister before, uh, for God before the nation of Israel. And now he says, have I ever done anything wrong according to your estimation? Wow. I think about the duration of that statement. You've known me since I was a child. You know, the Christian life is not measured in days, but it's rather measured in decades. Faithfulness cannot be gauged in such a short sample size as just a day. Your life and your faithfulness to God is determined by the whole arc of your life. That's why the prayer of every godly man and every godly woman ought to be, Lord, help me finish strong for you. Help me to run my race and fight the good fight, but Lord, help me finish my course for you. I think of the duration of that statement, but I also think of the desire of that statement. The Verse number 3, Samuel says, Behold, I am here. You can tell me what I've done wrong. And if I've done anything wrong, he says, I will restore it to you. Imagine if old Jethro in the back row stands up and says, Yeah, you owe me a hundred bucks. Samuel's already online. He says, I'll restore it. You know what I think we learn about that? We learn at the end of life, the things that matter were not money. We're not things. Samuel says, what really mattered in my life was serving the Lord and loving people. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things that he hath. It is a lot better to die with an empty bank account and a clear conscience than it is to die with a full bank account and a heavy conscience. Samuel says, I'll give anything. I want to be right with you and I want to be right with the Lord. I went into a, a, to business with a church member a, a while ago, a, a while back, and I told him, I said, now I want you to understand, before we ever agree to do this, there is not any amount of money that is worth mine and your friendship. Mine and your relationship. If it comes to it, I'll give you everything I have to redeem and restore the relationship. And that's what Samuel is saying. Man, what a statement. What a life of faithfulness before these people. We see not only the testimony of a faithful life, we see the message of a servant's heart. He had a few goals in this message. Number one, I think he wanted to praise God. He wanted to praise God. Notice verse number 7, what he says. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord. You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to brag on God a little bit. He said, the saga of Israel and the Lord is one of betrayal, deceit, and restoration and renewal. I mean, the children of Israel were idolatrous. In fact, in this passage, they even mentioned how they went after Ashtaroth and, and they had sought after other gods. They, they had been idolatrous. At other times, they had just been totally complacent. At other times, they had been murmurers and complainers. And yet... What Samuel says is, I want to talk to you for a little bit about how good God has been. And that everything He's ever done, including put us in subjection to foreign powers, have always been righteous deeds because He's always been bringing us back into Himself. Samuel's talking, first of all, about praising God. They had rebelled. 
they had then repented and eventually God had restored. And this was the pattern of Israel. He not only wanted to praise the Lord, but he wanted to proclaim his works in verse number 8. When Jacob was come into Egypt and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, which brought forth your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in places. And I think this is the overarching theme of the whole lesson. It is this. God raised up Moses and Aaron. God raised up Gideon. God raised up Samson. God raised up even me. God raised up deliverers. And it was always God that did it. Now I am certainly appreciative of a church family that has cared for my family and honored my family as you have. But I want to be very clear. The Joshua Baptist Church is not the result of a diligent man's hard work. The Joshua Baptist Church is the product of God's enormous blessings at this place for this people. I am thankful for my father and I'm thankful for his legacy. I'm also appreciative of the place that I get to serve at and the opportunity I have to preach his word, uh, the Lord's word. But I want you to understand it has never been men that do God's work. It has always been God that does his work through men. That's That's what Samuel is trying to say here. Praise the Lord for his work in our lives. He not only wants to proclaim His work, but He wants to let her see, point out their error. And this was the error that they had wanted a king. They had wanted a king. But God restored that and God used that. God was not surprised by their cry for a king. We talked about it in Genesis 48, how the scepter would never part out of Judah. How God had already in Genesis established the tribe that would be the kingly tribe. We talked about how even in the Levitical law, God had set up the standards by which the man would be appointed for the king. The the idea to promote a king was never a surprise to God. So God used their mistake in tandem with His providential and perfect plan. I can't explain that, friend. I really can't. But I know that what we do doesn't surprise God. But God is full of surprises for us. So we see, uh, thirdly then, I want you to see the third thought that uh, that Samuel was trying to convey. And it is that of the promise of the covenant. There were certain conditions to this covenant. What were they? Well, verse 20 and 21. Samuel said unto the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. I know you made a mistake. I know you sinned by asking for a king. But stay faithful to God. Serve the Lord. Fear the Lord. And turn ye not aside. For then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. He's calling back covenantal language. The same covenant that was made to Abraham. Walk before me and be perfect. The same covenant that was reiterated in Deuteronomy as God says, Behold today I set before you a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you will obey me and a curse if you shall rebel. Isaiah said, If you will walk after my ways, ye shall taste of the good of the land. This was always the deal between God and God's people. You honor God, God blesses you. You obey God, God promotes you. That was the plan of covenantal theology. But when Israel would betray God, when they would turn their back on God, when they would forget God, they would break the conditions of the covenant. But this is my favorite part of the lesson as we close. Verse 22. 
You've made a lot of mistakes. The saga of Israel is full of mistakes and errors and complainers. and Oh man, it's just full of a bunch of bad things. But verse 22. This is the cause of the covenant. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Because it hath pleased the Lord to make you His people. Why was Israel God-chosen people? Because God wanted them to be. It wasn't because Israel offered anything special or in particular. And God knew their journey would be full of mistakes. He knew that there would be those that would rebel. He knew those they would be a complaining people. And eventually He understood that they would be a people who would reject Him and reject His man and would say, We want a king to fight our battles. He knew their failures and yet He said, I have chosen to love you. Not because you're good, but because I am. The Bible says it like this in the book of Psalm 100 and verse 3. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His His people, and the sheep of His pasture. You know tonight why you're a child of God? Because God chose to love you. God doesn't choose us based upon talents, based upon what we have to bring to the table, what we can offer God. Look, God did not win the talent lottery when He got you. God chose to love us because God is love and God is good. And though your saga and my saga may be daily filled with sins and mistakes, we are not God's people because we can always do the right thing. We are God's people because God chose us to be His people. God loves us. And it is in this might and in His power that we live for Him each and every day. The true child of God realizes that it's verses that say, it is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. And His mercies are new every morning. It's child of God, you grab hold of verses like that and realize there have probably been times in your life where you identify a lot more with the children of Israel than you do the man of God, Samuel. But God says God has chosen you for His sake because He loves you. And He wants you to be a vessel that He can pour His love into and that His love would pour out onto others because of that.